Hey, good morning. Welcome to church. My name is Jamie Borchick. I'm one of the elders here to do some of the teaching. And it is a joy to have you with us this morning. Thanks for spending your Sunday morning here. Um, especially if you're visiting today, I want to say a big welcome to you. And uh, we want to get to know you and we want you to get to know us. And the best way you can do that is by sending a text right now to Connect RP Park. You'll see it up here, Connect RP Park to the number 22333. Send that number, you'll get back a link tree. You can do a bunch of stuff and get connected. We'd love to get to know you. So pull out your phone, do that right now. In particular, I want to encourage you to sign up for our weekly email. Um, even if you've been here a long time, if you don't get that weekly email, the weekly email is the best way to know about what is going on in the life of our church. Um, John and Phil draft that email. I think John does it most of the time. Yay. And he does an awesome job with it. And you get all the details of what's happening. So you can stay informed and stay connected. So do that right now. If you're not on there, get on there. Now, uh, if you have a Bible, you can find Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 will be in verses 21 to 38 this morning. And if you do not have a Bible, there's some at a, on a table in the back. I would encourage you to just get up and go grab one right, right now. We want you to be able to have God's word. Uh, so you can take that with you. It's a gift to you. would love for you to have that. Grab one. Now, I want to ask you an important question as we get started this morning. Who are you? Who are you? This is a huge question with huge implications. One scholar actually says there is only one question. Who are you? Everything else in life flows from that one question. Everything else in life, what you do, where you go, who you spend your time with, how you spend your energy and your money, who you enter into relationships with or don't, all of it flows from the central question of who are you? Who are you? And how do you know? Who or what gets to define you? How do you form an identity? We're preaching through the Gospel of Luke. And today we come to a really fascinating little passage. The end of Luke 3 contains a short little narrative that is followed then by one of those rather long genealogies that most people skip when they read through the Bible. And uh, the narrative tells the story of Jesus' baptism. And then the genealogy tells the story of Jesus' family history. And together they tell a story that is all about this question of identity. And so again, here's the key question today. Who are you? Who are you? And this morning the way we're going to approach this question is by reading the text. And then we're going to look at three who's. Three who's. Who we are. Who Jesus is. And then who you are. Who we are, who Jesus is, and then who you are. So I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. If you're able, stand on your feet. We're going to read the word of God. This is Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semeon, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kassam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, 
the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matha, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin. That guy had the gift of, of, of administration, if you're wondering. <laughs> the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sereg, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And now you have forever read the genealogy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, even parts of it that sometimes we might skip over or not pay close attention to, um, even parts of it that are hard to pronounce. We thank you for your word. And I ask that as we look at this passage today, you would speak to our hearts, you would teach us, you would speak to us, we would hear your voice. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can grab a seat. Our first two, who we are, who we are. How do we determine identity today? In our culture, how do we know who we are? I'm going to do a little cultural analysis here, and I'm borrowing from the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor and from the late Manhattan pastor Tim Keller, because their work on this is super helpful. And I need you to think with me on this for, for a little bit here. Now, the way that every culture used to do identity around the world and the way that non-Western cultures around the world still determine identity is with what you could call an outside-in approach, an outside-in approach. And so what you do in traditional societies is you go out and you find the highest good in the world out there. It could be your family or moral truth or your nation or uh, your community or a god of some sort, but you go out and you identify the highest good and then after determining what that thing is out there, then you come back in and you rearrange your life accordingly. And in these societies, you are your duties. Your self-esteem comes as, you, as your community honors and celebrates you for sacrificing your own selfish interest for the sake of that higher good. So for example, my wife Kinsey grew up on a farm that has been in her family since 1838. And so her grandfather was a farmer, her great-grandfather was a farmer, her great-great-grandfather was a farmer, and so on and so forth, all the way back to 1838. And when her dad was a young man and he was trying to figure out what he was going to be in his life, he had dreams of becoming an engineer someday. But want to guess what he ended up becoming? A farmer. Because that's what his family and that's what the community needed him to be. And that's how it works in traditional societies. Identity is received from the outside. Now in modern society, in our world today, the situation is the total opposite of that. Today, identity is not received. Identity is constructed. It's not outside in, it's actually inside out. And so in modern Western cultures today, what you do to find your identity is you go inward and you go on this deep inward journey to look at your deepest desires and you try to find what's really going on deep down inside of you, what your dreams and your desires are. And then you bring those out to the world around you and you express them and you tell everybody else what you found on the inside. And instead of you adjusting to accommodate all of them, they're the ones who need to adjust to accommodate you. So you're not your duties in modern Western society. Rather, instead, you are your desires. You are your desires. 
And the self-esteem you get is the dignity you bestow upon yourself when you actually assert who you are over and against the outside claims that are made on you by your family or by the state or by society or by the church or by anyone else. So in modern Western society, it's like the movie Moana. Any Moana fans out there? Anybody like Moana? Okay, a couple people? Three people? Okay, great. Um, well, Moana is actually a great movie. It's really fun. There's a, there's a really fun premise. It's a good movie. But what's the whole idea of the movie? Well, the idea is that Moana's community is telling her that she's a princess who needs to stay on the land. But on the inside, she feels like she's something more. She's made for the sea. And ultimately, she follows her inner desires and she sails off into the ocean. And then she returns the heart of Tefiti and she saves the day and she becomes a hero. And that's our modern identity narrative. And there is much to appreciate about modern society on this front. I'm very glad to live in a society where my options in life are not limited by what my family or my community says that I can be. That's a good thing. Traditional societies can be really stifling. And there have been huge gains that have been made because of that greater emphasis on the individual. But there are also some major problems with it. Often we go through life kind of accepting the assumptions of our culture without thinking about them very seriously. And for many of us, we've never paused to consider how our approach to identity today is, is affecting us, how it's really working out for us. And so what I want to do right now is give you something to consider. I want to share three reasons why our modern inside-out approach to identity formation doesn't actually work. The first problem is that this approach is inherently unstable. It is unstable. See, what's inside of you is always changing. Your feelings are very fickle. Your desires are always developing. And so if you look inside to find out who you really are, you're always going to find something different. And here's how you can know that that's true. However old you are right now, I want you to think back on yourself 10 years ago. Think back on 10 year ago you. And what does you right now think of 10 year ago you? Well, for almost all of us, when we look back at our younger selves, what we see is someone who thought they knew who they were and thought they knew what they were doing but by comparison to who we are now, really had no idea, right? Like you're different now. You've grown up. You've matured, hopefully. And looking back, now you knows that younger you was kind of an idiot. <laughs> and do you want to guess what you in 10 years is going to think of now you? Yeah, that dude was an idiot. <laughs> and so right now, what that means is that we're kind of all idiots to our future selves, which means that we're all always idiots, Right? And so inside-out identity is unstable because it's always changing. It's always changing. The second problem with this approach is that it's an illusion. It's an illusion. Inside of us, we all have discordant feelings. We have certain feelings that don't necessarily mesh with each other or with the world around us. It might be your career aspirations or your personal ambitions or your sexual longings or your relationship desires. But when you look inside, some of what you find doesn't fit with other stuff that you find. And so ultimately, if you look inside, you have to, you have to, what you have to do is choose which things inside of you you're going to, to pick to define you. And so your identity is never going to be everything that you feel inside. It's never going to be what you feel. But it's always going to be what you choose out of all the different things that you feel inside. And you'll express some things while at the same time you'll suppress certain other things. And how do, you, how do you decide which ones to express and which ones to suppress? Well, you do it the same way you decide what to post on social media, based on how many likes you're going to get. 
You look at what your cheerleaders will say and then you express the things that, you, that will get you the loudest applause and you, then you suppress the things that won't get you applause. And that's what all of us do. We're always being selective. We project what, what we want the world to see, not what's really on the inside. And so to say that you're finding yourself inside is actually an illusion. It's an illusion. And then third, inside-out identity is crushing. It's crushing. And this is the one that I think hits hardest. You know, traditional culture where you have to conform to your community is often suffocating, but modern culture can be crushing because it's all on you to prove yourself over and over and over and over again. Has anybody seen the movie Chariots of Fire? So in the movie Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrams is an English sprinter who has devoted his life to running, to, be, to, to being a sprinter. And uh, he's competing for, the, for tr- trying to win a gold medal at the Olympics. This is back in the, I think it's the 1928 games, but he's a sprinter from the UK. And the movie won, it, won an Oscar in the, back in the 80s when it came out. So it's a great movie, classic movie that you should check out. But in this one scene, Harold Abrams' girlfriend comes to him and asks him, why do you do it? Like you have sacrificed everything in your life for the sake of sprinting, for the sake of a silly sport, to run fast. Why do you do it? Why do you give up everything for the sake of this silly thing? And he looks at her as she asks that question. And he says these words that I find really haunting. He says, the reason I do it, the reason I give up everything, is because when I step up to that starting line, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Y'all, that's a ton of weight to put on your performance, to put on your ability to run fast or to make a sale or to ace a test or to crush that recital or to get that job or to raise perfect kids. But that's the kind of pressure that an inside-out identity puts on you. You have to justify your existence through what you do through your performance in the workplace or in the classroom or in your family or in your sport or in your relationship. It's all on you. And you constantly have to prove yourself. Ten lonely seconds to justify your existence. And if you fail, you are a nobody. The Jordan Peele movie Us is a sophisticated horror movie. And I'm not into horror movies, but what horror flicks do is they capture the anxieties of an age. And one of the prevailing images in the movie is this house of mirrors that appears as a backdrop for uh, much of the film. And there's this sign that you can kind of see if you look closely. There's this sign that uh, hangs over the entrance to the fun house on which you see the words, find yourself. Find yourself. You can see it right up here. Find yourself. And um, the idea that Jordan Peele is communicating with this funhouse is that if you go to look inside, if, if you just look within to find yourself, it's like going into this haunted house full of mirrors. It's a horror show. It's a dead end. It's a disaster. And that's what the inside out identity game is like. It's like the find yourself funhouse. And how many of us have found ourselves here? How many of us have gotten lost in the funhouse trying to find ourselves inside? 
This is who we are. This is who we are. Now, I've spent a lot of time setting this up this morning because I want you to feel the significance of this issue. We generally take it for granted that the way things are is the way they are. The way we do identity is what it is, and it's just the way things are, and we just kind of passively go along with it. But when you think about it, when you zoom out and you take stock of it, and you see how problematic it really is, it has to raise the question, well, is there an alternative? Is there another way other than the suffocating approach of traditional culture or the unstable, illusory, and crushing approach of modern culture? And that's where our text today becomes so helpful. Because this text that we read a moment ago brings us to our second who. And this text is all about who Jesus is. Now on the surface, part of this passage appears to be very traditional. Verses 23 through 38 are Jesus' family tree. And in traditional societies, people are often defined by their family tree. We have sayings like, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Because family has a way of defining you for better or for worse. And here we are at Jesus' family tree. There are 77 total names listed in verses 23 through 28. And these names do in fact tell us a story about who Jesus is. This genealogy reveals at least four key truths about Jesus. The first truth is that Jesus was related to his relatives. He was related to his relatives. And that might seem rather obvious, but it's actually really important to state. Because it means that Jesus was a real historical person. He wasn't fictional. He was a real man with a real family history who had real relatives in this very real world. Jesus was a real flesh and blood human with a real family tree. And he was one of us. He was one of us. The second truth, which you'll see in verse 31, is that Jesus was related to King David. So after Joseph in verse 23, you go down through the list, you don't recognize most of the names, then you get to David, and he's probably the first name that you know. And David was the guy who killed Goliath, and then he became the king of Israel, and he was the king against which all other kings were measured. And after David, all Israel longed to see a day where another King David would be back on the throne of Israel. Now, by the time Jesus came on the scene, it had been a long time since David, but Jesus is related to him. He's got those roots. He's got that royal connection. The third truth in verse 34 is that Jesus was related to Abraham and to the patriarchs of Israel. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham to become the father of a new nation. And God made promises to Abraham and to the nation of Israel that he would bless them and he would bless the whole world through them. And Jesus is part of Abraham's family. He's a distant heir to those promises. And then in verse 38, we see the fourth truth, that Jesus was related to Adam. And the name Adam in that verse has a sense of finality to it. Adam was the first man, made in the image of God and given a mission to be God's representative on the earth. But Adam failed in that mission when he took the forbidden fruit. And his failure wrought havoc on the world. Sin entered the story of humanity and sin was passed down from father to son, from generation to generation, down through our collective family line to us today. Now, most of the people on this list you've never heard of before. Some of them are famous, but most are obscure. Most of these names no one knows or remembers. But one thing every one of them has in common with each other and with us is that we are all related to Adam. We all fall short. We all fail. We all sin. And Jesus is born into this family line. This is his family tree. 
And if you read the Gospels, one thing that you'll see is that throughout his life, people tried to define Jesus based on this family tree. Later in Luke's Gospel, some people from Jesus' hometown asked the question, well, hey, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, what's he doing? He's not acting like someone from that family is supposed to act. In another scene, Jesus' own half-siblings come and they show up and they try to stop his ministry because they think he's nuts. He's not acting like one of them, so they call him crazy. At another point, even Jesus' own disciples are confused and frustrated with him because he's not overthrowing the Roman armies that are conquering them. Like they expected a conquering king like King David, but he talks about crazy things like turning the other cheek and loving your enemies. He claims to be the Messiah to fulfill God's promises to Abraham, but he's not doing what they think a Messiah should do. And then when Jesus hangs out with sinners, which he does a lot, the religious leaders call him a sinner too. To them, he's just like Adam. He's just like Adam. And so repeatedly, people tried to define Jesus from the outside in based on his family tree. And so is Jesus defined by this family tree? Is this who he is? Well, to answer that question, there's one more truth about Jesus in this genealogy that we need to take note of. At the outset of the genealogy in verse 23, Luke adds a little parenthetical comment. He says, Jesus, being the son, and what's that that you see there in parentheses in your Bible? As was supposed of Joseph. Luke is giving us here Jesus' family tree, but he wants to make it abundantly clear that there is more to the story than this family tree can tell. This is Joseph's line here, and yes, Joseph raised Jesus, and yes, Joseph acted as a father, and yes, Joseph's family, uh, family line led to Jesus, but Jesus was not defined by this family tree. The phrase son of occurs repeatedly in your English Bibles, but Jesus was not actually the son of Joseph. Look at verse 38. The final line of this genealogy tells us who Jesus really is. And what does it say there? The son of who? The son of who? That's not rhetorical. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the son of God. The son of God. And this is what Luke wants to emphasize to us about who Jesus is. Luke lines up all of Jesus' relatives for a family photo. They're all standing there. Abraham and David and Adam and all the rest. They're standing there in front of the, they're taking their positions in front of the camera. They're trying to stand there and look, look cool, look natural, putting their good smiles on. They're all lined up and they're standing there for the family photo. But then Luke looks at all of them and he says, hey, Jesus, God the Father, why don't y'all step forward? Come out in front. And he has them stand there out in front. And then he takes the lens and he focuses it on the two of them. Everybody else fades into the background. Everybody else fades into the background. Because this is the one relationship that matters more than all of the others. This is the relationship that truly defines who Jesus is. And we know that this is Luke's intention here because of what happens around this genealogy in Luke's gospel. In the scene that immediately follows in chapter 4, which we'll talk about next week, Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan comes at him. And do you know where Satan focuses his attack? It's on Jesus' identity. Multiple times he says to him, are you really the son of God? 
If you were really the son of God, you would act like this instead. And then if you look back, did you notice when we read the passage what came right before this genealogy? Look back with me at verses 21 and 22. Verses 21 and 22 are a bridge between the ministry of John the Baptist in Luke 3 and the ministry of Jesus that takes up the rest of the Gospel of Luke. And I want you to look closely with me at these verses. In these verses, Luke tells us that Jesus was baptized by John. And then after his baptism, while he was praying, the heavens were opened. And the entire Trinity shows up. Jesus is there in the flesh. The Holy Spirit comes like a dove and lands on him. And then the voice of the Father speaks. And what does the Father say? What does the Father say? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And with those words, what is the Father affirming about Jesus here? It's his identity. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. You're my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you. I'm happy about you. I like you. The Father is bestowing identity upon the Son. He's telling Jesus who he is. And so in this scene, what you have is the most important voice in the universe rendering his verdict of love and affirmation upon his Son. Because this is who Jesus really is. Now what's crazy about this is do you know where we are in Luke's gospel right here? Y'all, this is chapter 3. And do you know what happens in the first two chapters of the book? Like, do you know what Jesus has accomplished at this point in his life? What's his resume look like right now? Y'all, it's empty. He's basically been a kid who grew up. He successfully made it to adulthood. Way to go. He's not famous. He's done no miracles. He's got no followers. I mean, you've got more followers on Instagram than he did. If Jesus dies at this moment, nobody remembers him. And yet, what does God the Father say about him? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Not because of what he's done, but purely because of his relationship with his heavenly Father. Now, it is after, all, after this moment in Jesus' life that all the stuff that we remember him for happens. And in his life, there are times when massive crowds cheer him on and celebrate him. He's the toast of the town. He's, he's the ride in a high. He's on the mountaintop. And then there are other times where those very same crowds boo him and reject him and ultimately put him to death, right? He hears all kinds of verdicts from all kinds of people in his life. But through it all, Jesus stays remarkably steady. And do you know what keeps him so steady? It is the voice that trumps all the other voices. The voice of the Father telling him, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now the scene we just looked at, it happens at the very beginning of Jesus' public life. And then there's another scene near the end of Jesus' public life where something very similar happens. Luke chapter 9 takes place textually in the middle of Luke's gospel, but chronologically it happens near the very end of Jesus' life. And in Luke 9, Jesus goes up on a mountain with some of his disciples now, most of the time while Jesus is on earth, he's like Clark Kent, wearing a suit and tie. But every once in a while, every once in a while, you see the Superman suit kind of peeking out underneath. And while Jesus goes up on this mountain, he's transfigured. And all of a sudden, the fullness of his glory is on display. The whole Superman suit comes out. You see Jesus for who he really is. And while he's shining in glory, this is what happens. 
And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Do you know who's speaking here? It's God the Father again. And what is he saying? Retweet from chapter 3. This is my son. Or is it reacts now? Should we say reacts? Is that what we say now? But as Jesus turns toward Jerusalem and heads toward the cross that awaits him, the father reiterates his identity. You are my son. That's who you are. And so at the beginning and again at the end, Jesus' public life is bookended by his father's affirmations of his unchanging identity. You see, Jesus knew who he was not because he looked outward and listened to his community, nor because he looked inward and listened to his heart, but because he looked upward and listened to the voice that ultimately matters. He received an identity from the most awesome and powerful being in the universe, and that is what defined him. And so who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, as Luke tells us, when he was about 30 years old, or the age at which Jewish men were allowed to begin service in the temple, or the age at which King David began his reign, as the Son of God at about 30 years old, Jesus began his public ministry. And he went about that ministry in the confidence that whatever he faced, whatever came his way, he was the Son of God. He knew who he was, and who he was was not shaken by what people thought about him. As the Son of God, Jesus did not have a fallen, sinful nature like you and I have. He was eternally perfect, without sin in every way. And yet he chose to join himself to the human family tree. In his birth, being born of a woman, he became one of us. And in his baptism, going down into the water, he took his place among us, among those who need to be cleansed. And in the climax of his life, he went to the cross where one last time he identified with us. See, from our first parent, Adam, all the way down the family tree to today, every last one of us has fallen and failed. We've run away from God and we've run into the funhouse looking for life and looking for identity and instead just finding ourselves lost. And for our running and for our failings, we deserve the cross. And yet Jesus chose to go there to the cross in our place. On the cross, Jesus freely chose to take the full weight of all our failings upon himself. And he died so that you and I don't have to. And so who are we? We are descendants of Adam. We are lost in the funhouse trying to find ourselves. And we are all deserving of the cross. But who is Jesus? Jesus is the perfect son of God who lived the most stable, solid, honorable life in the history of the world but who also willingly went to the cross to be crushed for all the ways that you and I have failed to do the same. Jesus is the one who went into the funhouse to find us. Jesus is the one who took the cross in order to save us. And all of that brings us back to where we started, who you are. See, Luke's primary aim in writing this section of the gospel is to establish very clearly at the outset of his gospel who Jesus is. He wants you and I to know that Jesus is the Son of God and to put our trust in him as such. But in addition to that truth, there's also something beautiful that is hinted at by this passage that has profound implications for our identity question today. Luke, who wrote this gospel, spent several years traveling with the Apostle Paul. 
And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, Luke's friend Paul writes this. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Sometimes Christians talk about the fact that when you believe in Jesus, you receive Jesus. You get Jesus in you. And that is absolutely true. That does happen. But in reality, the Bible talks far more often. It uses language like this to say that when you believe in Jesus, you actually become in him. And so it's like this. These are uh, nesting dolls. Have you seen these before? You know what these guys are? These are nesting dolls. See these? And um, you get these out at the holidays sometimes. You get like multiple little guys inside of each other. And it's like this. So here is, here's you. It's yourself. Here you are. You look beautiful. There you go. And uh, what happens when you believe in Jesus, when you trust in the Son of God, when you believe in Jesus, what, what God does is he opens you up, opens you up, and he takes Jesus, and he puts Jesus inside of you. You receive Christ. You have Christ in you. He lives in you. Christ is in you. See, isn't that wonderful? You have Christ in you. It's incredible that that is true. But it doesn't stop there. Then what God does is he takes Jesus, he takes Jesus, and he opens Jesus up, and he takes you, you know where he puts you? He puts you in Christ, in him, in Jesus. And so now, when God looks at you, what does he see? He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. See, what's true of Jesus, if you're a believer in Jesus, what's true of Jesus is also true of you. It's also true of you. And here in this verse, what is true of you in Jesus? You are a son of God. You are a son of God. And that language is not gender exclusive here. In the ancient world, it was sons who got all the inheritance rights. And so Paul's using that language deliberately. And so whether you are male or female, when you believe in Jesus, you become a son of God in Christ. With all the rights and all the privileges of membership in God's family. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And whatever is true of Jesus is therefore true of you. And y'all, that is not because of anything that you have done. In fact, it's despite all that you have done. It's not because of your performance in life. It's strictly because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. The perfect son of God was crushed so that you don't have to be. He gave his life so that you could have life. So that you, like him, could be a son of God forever with all the rights and privileges that come with being a member of God's family. And so let me pull all of this together for you. I have right here, I have this bill. See this? And uh, how much is this bill worth? What's that? $20. Thank you. This is participatory, okay? Now, uh, what if I take this bill? What if, I, what if I take this bill? And what if I uh, yell at this bill? What if I say this bill? Like, look, you are the worst $20 bill I have ever seen in my life. You will never amount to anything. You are an embarrassment to this family. How much is this bill worth? $20. Okay, what if I look at this bill and I say to it, uh, hey, you're, you're just really not cutting it and uh, we're going to have to let you go. 
How much is this bill worth? It's $20. What if I say to this bill, um, hey, it's been real, uh, it's, it's been fun, but um, you know, it's, it's just not going to work. It's not you, it's, it's me. Uh, I, I think we should see other people. What, what is this bill worth? $20, right? Okay. Um, what if I say to him, hey, um, you should really get your kids under control. Like, I, what kind of a parent are you? You let your kids act like that? What kind of parent are you? How, how much is this bill worth? How much? $20. Okay, okay. What if, what if I take this bill and I, I crumple it up, say I'm done with you, trash. How much is this bill worth? $20. $20. Why does any of that, does any of that change the value of this bill? No. Why does this bill have value? Because the United States government, the most powerful entity on the planet, says that this bill has value. There is nothing that you can do to this bill that will negate its value. Now, why do you have value as a believer in Jesus? Because the most powerful entity in the universe says that you have value. If you're a believer in Jesus, because of Jesus, your identity and your value and your worth in life is stable and solid and secure and real because God the Father says to you, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. See, in your life, you'll have ups and you'll have downs. And along the way, you will hear all kinds of verdicts rendered on you by all kinds of people. But if you are a believer in Jesus, there is only one verdict that ultimately matters. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. See, Jesus offers you something that neither looking out nor looking in can ever provide you. Jesus offers you an identity that is bestowed upon you from above. He offers you an identity that is stable and solid and secure and real, given to you by God the Father, the God of the universe, who loves you so much that he gave his very life for you. And so today, stop looking out and stop looking in and start looking up. Look up to the one who says to you, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this passage, this story about Jesus, who is the one true son of God. By nature, by life, he is the son of God. And we thank you that Jesus gave his life on the cross in our place for us so that we too could become sons and daughters in your family. We thank you for all that you offer us in Christ. I pray for those who came in here today, maybe, maybe questioning their value, questioning their identity, questioning their worth in life. Would they look up today? Would all of us, would we as a people, would we in a world that looks out and that looks in, would we be a people who look up, who look up to you and who listen to what you say? Would we allow you to be the one who defines us? Would we hear your voice over every other voice in our lives? We pray that in Jesus' name.